0: and Luke chapter 21 verse 1 it says and he looked up and he saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury and he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites and he said of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury or poverty hath cast in all the living that she had. And some spake of the temple how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. He said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now the events that are before us in chapter 21 take place in the final week of Jesus' ministry just prior to him going to the cross and they happen more specifically on the heels uh, of what had just taken place within the temple wherein all of the major um, bodies of Jewish authority were testing Jesus or tempting him um, both in some attempt to try to catch him in his words in a way wherein they could accuse him and find fault with him and also just to find some fault with him to excuse themselves from being accountable to his words and not only did Jesus pass every one of those tests and silence every one of his adversaries but he also uh in 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 that um process or mode of doing that he laid upon them the charge of them being guilty of hypocrisy and also of not being able to deliver on the call that God had placed upon their lives and so there was a very heated exchange that had taken place just prior to this between Jesus and all of those religious rulers wherein of course Jesus came out on top and it tells us now that right after that took place, he sat in a place within the the temple compound where him and his disciples could observe and they could see the various people that were casting their gifts and their offerings into uh, that, that, that treasure box wherein the people would come and they would donate their money. And as they did so, of course, we read that there were the rich men that came casting in uh, with great fanfare, their large sums of money in the eyes of all the people so that they could be seen and admired for what they were doing and how much they were giving but in the midst of all of that commotion there came in sort of maybe subtly a, a little old woman who didn't look like much and wasn't wearing much and didn't have much and it was obvious by her appearance and, and didn't maybe even want anybody to see how much he was putting in but somehow jesus either could see or he just knew that it was just two mites, which is just the, the absolute smallest amount of money that it would be possible for someone to put into the offering. And as he sees this and he knows that his disciples have seen this, he looks at them and he says something that would come as somewhat of a shock. He says to them that this woman who just cast in these two little mites has cast in more than all of the rich people that have come prior to her and cast in of their wealth the great abundance of things that they had uh, in order to be seen of men. It's interesting to me to consider that from the very beginning of God's work within the world expressed through the nation of Israel, he has chosen that his work would be provided for or the practical needs of his work would be funded by the giving or the free will offerings of his people. In the Old Testament, it was law. They had to do it. There was a requirement that was given to them under Moses, and a certain percentage of their income and of their increase and of their harvest and of their livestock, all of that had to be given to God, and they had no choice in it because they were under the law of Moses. But it was still their responsibility to provide those things in obedience to God. It was between them and God, whether or not they did it. When we come into the New Testament, we recognize that we're not under the law and that there is no law per se of giving wherein we're required to give or a percentage wherein we have to do that. And uh, certainly anything that we give is, is, is according to what God lays upon our heart. But it still stands that throughout both covenants, and as long as there is man and there is God and there is this relationship between heaven and earth in the context that we know it to be, God has ordained that his work be sustained and provided for by the giving of his people upon the earth. Now, the question is, why would God choose to do it that way? Well, one of the reasons that God chooses that is because it's a very practical way that we can express our faith in partnering with him Concerning his work in the world. And that is that we see the hand of God moving in a particular way, and as in our spirit, we say amen to that, but yet we find that we don't have the practical means of being involved in it with our hands that we can get behind that work then by our support of it financially, because there's always a financial burden behind anything that takes place uh, in the ministry upon the earth. Another reason that God would choose that that his work would be uh, um, continued through the giving of his people is that in our giving of the money or or the resources that we earn or that we have, there's a spiritual release that happens within us wherein we find that those uh, things, whether it be our money or our possessions, they lose their hold on us. And there's something that can happen within the hearts of human beings is that we can become very possessive of the things that we have. And we come, become possessive of those things to a point where we no longer possess those things, but those things instead possess us and we're governed instead by them. But in the giving of those things and in specifically giving of those things to God, the power of that hold that those things have over us is released a little bit and we become set free from being governed by our possessions. And so it's a way of God in raising us up to set us free from being possessed by the things that we possess, which is something very uh, real that can happen. A third reason why God has chosen to do it that way is because it serves as a witness to the unbelieving world uh, that 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 our testimony that we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. And I love to see what happens um, from time to time when new people come to church here uh, and they come in and they're, they sit in the back and they're feeling out the service and they're just waiting for the offering. They're waiting for the time when the music is going to get low and someone's going to come up and begin to make a plea and, you, you know, and the whole thing. And then everybody's, you see buckets starting to move around and ushers getting ready and in position and all the rest. And, and they wait for that. And then it doesn't happen. And they'll come for a couple of weeks and then they'll ask the question and say, well, how does this place run? And to just be able to say, well, there's boxes in discrete locations around where you cannot know what your left hand, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And you can uh, just freely, you mean you fund everything that's going on here just on on that? People can give secretly and you don't know who gives or who gives what or if they give at all. And you could come here and not give and, and this thing continues. Yes, it does. well this can't be an easy or cheap operation no it isn't well then how does it happen it happens because the people of god are moved by the spirit of god to provide for the work of god because it bears witness within their heart and that serves as a witness to the unbelieving world when they see that the thing that people give the, the the bulk of their energy to and to obtaining and that they're willing then to freely release that for the sake of furthering something like this, it is to them a voice from heaven that there's something of reality about it, that there's a work of grace that's going on within the hearts and the lives of those people. And then finally, and you probably could exhaust this list for the rest of the Bible study, but I'll just uh, point out one more thing. One more reason why God chooses uh, that way to provide for His work is that it gives to His people an opportunity for a, a rewardable investment in the world to come. And what God teaches us in the Word is that we cannot possibly outgive Him. And He says that anything that we're willing to part with on this side of eternity for His kingdom's sake and for His name's sake he then will reward us for that in eternity. And thus what we're doing by giving of our resources now is that we're investing in our future to come, our eternity and that, that which is to good. Now here, here's the point of what Jesus is making by telling them about this widow and contrasting her with these rich men. So he's saying this. He's saying that God measures the value of an offering by its sacrifice and not by its size. In other words, God doesn't store up treasures and crowns and investments for us eternally based upon the dollar amount that we give, but rather he does it based upon the proportion of what we give to what we have. And what that does is it equalizes the playing field because it means that even someone who isn't necessarily wealthy or someone of means that they can still store up an equal treasure in heaven and they can be equally as rich towards God when they get there, even though they don't have the funds perhaps to provide for some major thing, like to build a hospital for his name or in some large endeavor and that thing. It also teaches us that God, when he sees a giver, he sees the heart behind the gift that is given. And so our reward is not based upon the amount uh, really, um, it's based upon our willingness to give, it, to give it up. And that's what he wants uh, for us. The other thing that we learn um, in this is that God is not limited or restrained when we can only give a little. Notice that Jesus wasn't at all upset. In fact, he was thrilled with the fact that this woman was putting her two mites. He didn't tell her not to put it in there because you know what, why don't you just keep it? It would be better for you to have it. He allowed her to do it. And the reason is this, is because the Bible says that God can do whatever he wants with whatever he wants. And if God has two mites to work with, he can take that two mites and he could do more with that two mites than any man or any administration could ever do with it. We learned that from a little boy who just had a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish one day when a great multitude of people needed to eat. And with such a small offering that he gave from his heart, Jesus was able to feed a multitude of 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. It's interesting that here, uh, the disciples come to Jesus in verse five, and it tells us that they, they come to him there and they wanna show him all of the beautiful gifts that the temple is adorned with. And you almost get the idea that they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, you know, Lord, we hear what you're saying about the two mites and about how she cast in more than they all. But there really is something to a big donor, Lord. I mean, you're not gonna build all of this with just two mites. But what amazes me is that Jesus isn't impressed with that at all. The Bible says that if God were hungry, he would not tell you. The Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I believe that God is offended when people in his name beg for money as though God is going bankrupt. He does not need anything that we give but he uses even the smallest that we give in his name sacrificially, and he can do great things with it. The Bible says he has no need, but that he loves a cheerful giver. And thus Jesus gives to us this exhortation with the life of this woman. Jesus' response to his disciples when they showed him the temple and the gifts and the stones and all that that it was there, he says in verse six again, he says, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not only is he unimpressed with the things that he sees outwardly, but he points them now forward to a day that's coming in the future when none of those things will exist anymore. And he shows the mere futility of simply looking at things from a financial or an outward perspective. Well, so amazed are the disciples when they hear this statement that Jesus makes that it prompts them to ask a question in verse seven. It says, and then they asked him saying, master, but when shall these things be? That is the removal of these stones from being uh, stacked upon each other. And what sign will there be when these things will come to pass? And so they ask this question, or really they ask these two questions. And what these two questions serve to do is that they open the door and prompt Jesus to give the only teaching that he gives during the final week of his ministry and perhaps the greatest end times related sermon that's ever been given or the most insightful discourse that's ever been given by Jesus concerning uh, the end time scenario in the days uh, leading up to his second coming. This sermon, it's called the Olivet Discourse. And I know that sounds very technical. It's called that because he gave it while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So there's a very simple reason for such a technical name, um, but but that's what it's called. It's recorded in three of the four gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And the only difference really between the passages, uh, or at least in this verse, is that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records that they asked Three questions, not the two only that Luke records here. And in Matthew, what they asked is not only when shall these things be, but they carried the question into the future and they said also what will be the sign of your coming, that is the second coming, and of the end of the world. And that would be the end of the world. And, and so the context of Jesus' answer to these questions is not just in the immediate context of what will happen in jerusalem but rather he looks forward into the future and he sees it all the way through until the second coming in the end of the age and thus he gives to us great insight concerning those times now a couple of quick prerequisites before we look at the sermon and see what jesus said it's useful for us to understand that prophecy in the bible that is the speaking of something that will happen before it happens that's what prophecy is the prophecy in the bible oftentimes has a near fulfillment and also it has a far fulfillment you know and and so uh there'll be times like for instance moses prophesied that the children of israel would go into captivity that they would lose possession of their land and that they would be carried away into other nations as captives that had a near fulfillment that took place in 586 bc and in those years around there when the babylonians came in but it also had a far and greater fulfillment when the jews were dispersed in 70 a.d the time that jesus is talking about a, a near fulfillment and afar we also see that um, with the prophecy in malachi saying that elijah will come before christ And of course, Jesus points out and he says that Elijah did come and he was speaking of the the coming of John the Baptist. And we know that when Jesus comes the second time, Elijah will also come then. So there's a near fulfillment and also there's a far and a greater. We also know that concerning the coming of Christ. There's a near fulfillment in his first coming and then there's a far fulfillment in his second coming. We know that concerning the prophecy of the Antichrist or the abomination of desolation. We saw or we don't see it, but in the history books, uh, it's prophesied by Daniel, of course, that there'll be an abominable man that will desecrate the temple. There was a near fulfillment of that with Antiochus Epiphanes when he slaughtered a pig upon the altar. And there will be a far fulfillment of that when the Antichrist goes into the third temple, which hasn't been built yet. And he declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped. And that's called the abomination of desolation. So there's a near fulfillment and then there's a far fulfillment of that. And the reason why I point that out to you now is because as it concerns this sermon that Jesus gives, there is also a near fulfillment of it and then there's a far fulfillment of it. And so the near fulfillment of the sermon that Jesus is giving here was fulfilled in the year 70 AD when Titus and the Romans came in and they burned the temple and literally dismantled it stone by stone in order to harvest the very gold and precious stones and gifts that the disciples just pointed out to Jesus in the previous verse. And they will do that and the Jews will be dispersed. That's the near fulfillment. But there is also a far fulfillment of it that will take place in the end time scenario in the last days. And that is what Jesus primarily focuses on as he gives this sermon. Now, in Mark and in Luke, Mark and Luke primarily look to the far fulfillment. Luke mixes it up and gives us a little bit of each. And so Luke is a little bit more balanced in it uh, as we look at it but it's important to understand the near and the far fulfillment of Bible prophecy the other prerequisite that I'll lay forward before we get into the text of the sermon is that when we're talking about end times uh, events or the end times scenario it's important for us to understand uh, the divisions of time that make up Uh, the end times events. And so let me define those for you very simply in this way so that you don't get lost when we begin looking at what Jesus said here. What we are living in right now, and we have been living in this time ever since the apostles uh, began their ministry in the book of Acts is what is known as the church age. That's what we're in right now. It's the church age. And the church age is the period where whosoever will let him come. The judgment for our sin has been laid upon Christ in the cross. The message of the gospel is going forward and whosoever will receive Christ by faith can find a place in his kingdom and be a part of the church that is also called the bride of Christ. But the church age will end with an event that's called the rapture when God will come down and he will take up his faithful and prepare the world for the next segment of time. And that next segment of time is known as the tribulation or the day of the Lord. And that is a seven year period of time, according to the Bible, when God will pour out his judgment upon a world that has been overcome with transgression and sin and has no more hope of redemption or light. And so the church age will finish at a particular point. God will take out his ambassadors because every country will call their ambassadors home before they declare war on another country and then once the church is gone god will then pour out his wrath in the day of the lord of the tribulation for seven years on an unbelieving world and then that period of time will culminate with the return of christ or the second coming of jesus christ and so there's the church age up till the rapture And then there's the tribulation, seven years of judgment until the battle of Armageddon and Jesus Christ comes back. And that's the second coming uh, of Jesus. Now, the reason why I point that out at the beginning of the sermon is because Luke doesn't draw those lines in the text. And so as I'm expounding the various sections of it, you'll know where to place them uh, in that uh, scenario there and we don't have time to uh, go through daniel and um, matthew and mark and revelation and and build all of that and so for now you'll have to take my word on the the rough outline of those um, time segments now the sermon is divided into four sections by luke the first thing that he gives to us is the conditions uh, of the world throughout the church age And he does that in verses eight all the way down through verse 19. And so the conditions of the world throughout the church age, and that's where we're at now. So that's of particular interest to us. The second division of the sermon is the desolation or the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's from verse 20 through verse 24. And he looks at that completely in the near term. So he just talks about what will take place in 70 AD there. Then the third division of the sermon is the signs of the end, which is the question that he's answering. And that's from verse 25 all the way to verse 28. And then from verse 29 all the way to verse 37, he gives the reason why he's giving us this information. And that really should be the great question, isn't it? I mean, this stuff is very interesting, but why is he telling it to us? And so that's what he gives us at the end of the sermon. And so let's look at the text of what Jesus says. We begin with the first section, which is the conditions uh, of the world throughout the church age, verse eight. It says, and he said, take heed or beware or be careful that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and the time draweth near." go ye not therefore after them. The very first thing that Jesus says, and it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke concerning our understanding of end times things is he said, be careful that you are not deceived. The apostle Paul reiterates the same warning in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, verse three, when he's talking about the end times and he says, take heed that no one deceive you by any means. And so the Bible is very emphatic as it instructs us concerning these things that we're to watch out that we are not deceived as it is relating to these things. Now, what is the means or the reason why people are deceived? And here's what it is, Jesus says it. He says, because many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and they will deceive many. And what that means is that is not that the people are gonna come and say, I am the Christ, that's inconsistent. They're coming in his name and they're professing that he is the Christ. They will come in my name and they'll say that I'm Christ, Jesus is saying. And what we know is that usually that's all it takes for a Christian to let their guard down. If a person professes that they're coming in Jesus' name, and they're professing that they're speaking on behalf of the Jesus of the Bible, we usually say, oh, say on. You probably know more than I do. And we give them our full attention and our full heed. And Jesus says, that's not gonna be enough for you to not be deceived concerning these end time scenarios. And so what is the solution to that deception? Jesus says this, here's what it is, very simple. Here's how you're not deceived. Don't follow them. You say, don't follow who? Don't follow anyone. Don't give your allegiance or specifically your, I'll call it your end times allegiance to any teacher other than Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't listen to anyone teach about the end times? Because if that's the case, you should all just get up and go right now. No, of course not. Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. Paul taught about the end times. he, He was emphatic, emphatic to the Thessalonian church about the end times. The idea is this is that we listen to what people have to say, but then we take it to the word of God and to the person of Christ and to the presence of the Holy Spirit and we say, God, now you show me and confirm in the word of God the verity or the truthfulness of these things that I'm hearing and help me to sort this out before you alone. And that will be our defense against being deceived. It's amazing the amount of voices that there are right now clouding the end times airwaves, isn't it? I mean, what's today? It's September 23rd. And if you're at all a follower of these types of things, then this has been the big buzzword day for who knows how many months now. September 23rd, that's the day when all hell is gonna break loose. And everybody's had their theories about everything leading up to the Day of Atonement. The presence of the blood moons and the the various eclipses solar that have taken place and the year of the Shemitah and the jubilee and we hear all of these there's all these voices that are thundering at us saying things and what jesus would say to us here is not that we should close out all of those voices necessarily but we're not to go after them but rather we're to give heed to the word of god and that our allegiance is to be to him and to what he has revealed and we're to keep our feet on sober ground that's the call He says, don't be deceived. Don't go after them. But then he says in verse nine, but when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by, or the end has not come yet. And then he said unto them, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. And so he talks about geopolitical uprisings, nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. He talks about natural disasters and famines and pestilences and all of these things that the world would brand as acts of God or things that strike fear within the hearts of men. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that all of these things are not in and of themselves signs of the end. All of these things will exist and persist all the way throughout the church age. These things have always been throughout. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, this list of things is called by Jesus labor pains. Luke doesn't use that term, but Matthew and Mark both do in association with these things right here. And Jesus says, the reason why I point these things out to you is because the way that you'll observe these things is the same way that you'll observe labor pains as they come upon a woman who's about to give birth. And that is that labor pains, they start off soft and far in between, but they grow in frequency and intensity as you grow closer to the time of delivery. And so what Jesus is saying to us here is that, yes, these things are always going to exist. There's always going to be wars and uprisings, earthquakes, natural disasters, pestilences, famine, and the such. But as you see the time of approaching, then what you're going to notice is that there's an increase in frequency of these things, and there's going to be an increase in intensity of these things. And so it's something to put in the back of your mind, just a monitor, just to, to pay attention as things become more intense and more frequent in this arena, pay attention, let your antenna be up. Then he says in verse 12, he says, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish in your patience, possess ye your souls. And so in attachment to the labor pains, what also will exist as a condition that will exist throughout the church age, but will grow with intensity and frequency at the end of the age, is the persecution and the hatred of believers. That as we grow closer and closer to the end, we should expect and be prepared and be ready for the fact that if we are bearing witness to him and living our lives in the way that we want, that we are not only going to be hated, but we will also be betrayed and in some instances put to death. And I think it's important for us in this day and age to recognize that these are the words of Jesus. And all of us are excited about and looking forward to the rapture. And it's every one of our hopes that we're a part of that and that we escape all of these things. But it must be embraced by every one of us that when we signed on to this salvation and allowed our names to be written in heaven, The very real possibility of our martyrdom is absolute. And Jesus calls us to in patience possess our souls and to embrace persecution if it should come our way. And we don't know that it might come our way in the days that we live in as we see these things grow within their intensity. And so he gives to us this exhortation that we're to be uh, on guard against being stumbled if persecution comes our way so concerning the conditions throughout the church age jesus says these things will be the conditions only they will increase with frequency and intensity as you see the day drawing near the second part of his sermon as he moves into verse 20 then uh, concerns the destruction of jerusalem now let me say it again matthew and mark they put this passage in their rendering of the sermon, completely in the context of the far fulfillment of what will take place in the end times when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple and declares himself to be God. They speak of it in those terms only. And Luke speaks of it in the near term fulfillment only. So keep that in mind as we look at verse 20. He says, and when you shall see Jerusalem, compassed or surrounded with armies then know that the desolation thereof is nigh now this is in direct answer to their question remember when will these things be when will these stones and these golden jewels and gifts be lifted so that one's not upon another jesus says when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that the desolation is near then let them that are in judea flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out and let not them that are in the countries enter there into for these be the days of vengeance that all things that are written may be fulfilled, but woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, nursing mothers, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Now, there's two things in there that highlight or point to us that this is specifically speaking of the 70 AD event. When Titus came in, when he slaughtered a million Jews, when he burned the temple and dismantled it stone by stone. Number one is that in verse 20, he says, know that the desolation of Jerusalem is near. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus speaks in both of those about the abomination that causes desolation and then he qualifies it, that was spoken by the prophet Daniel. So this is different. The other big difference is in verse uh, 23 where it says that there shall be wrath upon this people. This people is speaking here primarily of the Jews that rejected the first coming of Christ and they were paying for that in that context then in the far fulfillment of this prophecy, it isn't wrath just upon this people, it's wrath upon all people. And that's a big difference, you know, between the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. And so he concludes it in verse 24 by saying that they shall fall by the edge of the sword and they shall be led away captive into all nations. Now this prophecy was fulfilled perfectly through the romans and their dispersing of the jews throughout the land after titus there arose another emperor whose name was hadrian and he hated the jews so much that he went into jerusalem and he wanted to exterminate any that were remaining and it is said that he slaughtered over a million more jews salted and burned their fields and made a decree that if any two jews are ever seen talking to each other together that both of them are to be slain immediately he stripped Jerusalem of its name, Jerusalem or city of peace, what it was called historically by God. And he gave it the name Aelia Capitolina, which is capital of Hadrian. And thus, in that time, the Jews were dispersed throughout all the nations, even as Jesus prophesied here that it would take place. And then it says this to close it out. It says, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, the times of the Gentiles that Jesus is talking about here is a reference to the church age because the church is primarily, by and large, made up of Gentiles. There are Jews in the church, but they lose their Jewish identity. Paul would say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free but all are one in Christ. That's the church. And so this is the times of the Gentiles when the gospel is going to the highways and the byways, when whosoever will can come and receive grace through the person in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the church age. It's that period of time from Pentecost all the way up until the rapture. And Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That is until the age of grace or the church age comes to a close. Now, here's the amazing thing about that as we observe it and sit in our seats here tonight. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel prophesied in chapters 36 and 37 of his book, you can read it yourself, that in the last days, in the latter times, God would go throughout the world and he would begin to gather his scattered Jewish people from the nations that they are in. And he will bring them back to the land of Israel in the last days. He prophesied that in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, and that Israel would become a nation again. And the amazing thing is that we've seen that take place in our lifetime. Well, not my lifetime, but some of yours. On May 14th, 1948, Israel was made a nation again by the United Nations officially. Then in 1967, the Six-Day War took place. And the result of the Six-Day War is that Israel captured control over the Temple Mount for the first time since this prophecy was first fulfilled in 70 AD. They had control of Jerusalem, except one little plot of land the Temple Mount, the most important plot of land, if you would. For some reason, when they won the Six-Day War, Moshe Dayan, who was the prime minister at that time, he made the decree that the Temple Mount would remain under the control of the Muslim people, of those that were there in that land. And to this day, though the Jews have control of Jerusalem, they do not have control of the Temple Mount. That's why the Dome of the Rock shrine, that Golden Dome mosque is there, and the Al-Aqsa mosque, that thing that's been in the news as of late with the little black dome on the other side. But what does that mean for you and I? It means that though the Jews again have possession of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is still being trodden down of the Gentiles, even to this day. And what did Jesus say? That Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be come in and so we see that happening today but isn't it interesting to see the stage set in the way that it is uh, in the scenario that the bible so uh incredibly paints before us now when we get to verse 25 jesus begins to give the signs related to the days when the times of the gentiles will be fulfilled um the first sign That that, that really is given is really in verse 24 and what that sign is is that jerusalem will no longer be trodden down of the gentiles (laughs) that that will be a a major sign when you see that happen but here's what's going to have to happen in order for that to be fulfilled something is going to have to happen to remove the presence or the influence of radical islam in that part of the world and that's a big something <laughs> I mean, because that's a big problem, and there uh, there really isn't a, a, a solution to that um, other than the fact that if you read uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which are the two chapters that come right after 36 and 37, the regathering, <laughs> you find out when you read those two chapters that there's going to be a war wherein all of those Muslim nations are going to say enough is enough, and they're going to surround Israel and seek to put them down and take them out. And God is going to intervene in that battle and five-sixths of that invading Muslim army is going to be destroyed and annihilated at that time. And I believe that that will be what takes place to remove the presence or the influence of radical Islam uh, in the days. It could happen differently than that. That's just how I see it as I read those chapters and see this uh, very scenario. But that will be one of the, the signs is that you'll see um, that Jerusalem is no longer trodden down by the Gentiles. Um, now, one more thing I want to say before I get into the rest of these signs in, the, in these verses is that Luke does not, as I said before, draw the line of distinction between the end of the church age and the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. And so what we see as we look at these signs is that some of these signs uh, could be before the tribulation begins, and some of them are very clearly after the tribulation begins. But Luke doesn't make that distinction, so I'm making it uh, for you here now. Notice in verse 25, the second sign that Jesus gives. He says that there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now, I don't know what this means. And there's a lot of talk today about blood moons, you know, the, the lunar eclipses and the tetrads that they just happen to fall upon uh, the Jewish holidays and the solar eclipses that happen, the moon being turned to blood, the sun not giving its uh, light. You know, we, we read about these um, different things and we hear about them and it draws the question within us, is that what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars? Here's my problem with that is that when you read revelation chapter six which describes this sun moon star thing in more detail it's very clearly taking place in the tribulation time and where we are right now we are clearly not in the tribulation time as it stands and so it speaks to me from scripture that what we're seeing in these tetrads or these blood moons is not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Same thing when you read Matthew chapter 24, Jesus elaborates on this more, but he places it very clearly in the tribulation time. And so I'm not sure about it. Now, Now, let me say this though, concerning the blood moons and the tetrads and all that kind of thing. I personally find it very interesting, the dates that those blood moons happen to fall on that there was there was a lunar eclipse last year, Passover, and then last year, Feast of Tabernacles, and then this year, Passover, and this year, Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know what the scientific probability of that happening, that it could be that that, that, that could happen easily. You know, I don't know what it is. I find it interesting. And so here's what I do with it. I hold it way out here. And I don't invest a single dollar or calorie of energy in it other than the fact that I take notice of it and say, oh, wow, the Bible says signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and there are these blood moons that fall on these feast days, and I know that we're in the last days, and I put all those things together, and I say, Jesus, I know you're coming soon, but I'm not gonna write a book about it or buy one <laughs> and capitalize on it, you know, in, in that way, you know, and so it's, it comes back to what we read uh, back in, in the early verses, right? Jesus says, take heed that you be not deceived. What we know is that at some point, the moon will be turned to blood. The sun will fail to give its light. And I believe that these things will be extremely supernatural in their uh, their um, expression and not just something that is of a natural phenomenon. That's my uh, personal opinion. And so he points it out. Then he says, he goes on to say, and it's the third thing. He says that upon the earth, there will be distress of nations with perplexity. Now, the word that Jesus uses there for distress, the word literally means a narrowing and here's the idea behind that word is that though the world is traveling down this road it's going somewhere and it's carrying with it all of its problems and all of its baggage and all of its resources and all of its conflicts and as it's going down this road the road is beginning to narrow and there's a problem that's coming in the future wherein there's not enough room for the world in all of what it is to pass through that opening because of the narrowing that's happening there's a distressing and that distressing comes with jesus says perplexity and the word perplexity means problems that have no solution and so what you have here jesus is saying one of the signs of the end times is that there's going to be a narrowing of the passageway At the same time, the world has problems that don't have a solution. So it's big, big problems in the world. And what he's saying is that you'll be able to kick the can concerning those problems so far down the road, but there will come a point when you can no longer kick the can. And now once the world can't keep moving, now you got a problem. And so we look at the world today and we say, what kinds of problems are going on within the world? And we see that there's big problems with the global economy. We see that there's big problems with clashing ideologies and religions. We see that there are power struggles politically between the East and the West and the North. We see that there's moral decay that is having an absolutely putrefying effect upon man and upon culture and upon society. And we see Jerusalem, which maybe seems like the smallest of all the world's problems, but yet the Bible says that's the big one. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses two and three, the prophet Zechariah says, behold, speaking of course for God, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Jerusalem, and against Jerusalem. And in that day, will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it and what god declares by the prophet is that of all the world's problems and they're all problems that have no solution but that one problem is going to be a perplexing problem because it's going to seem that there should be a real simple solution to this but god says there's no solution to this problem and it's going to bring the world to its knees even if all the world is gathered together against it and so problems that have no solution The fourth sign that Jesus gives uh, then following, he says after that, the sea and the waves roaring, and this all goes together, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. He says the sea and the waves will roar, the hearts of men will fail and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And all of what Jesus says in this sentence or statement that I just read has to do with the coming shaking that this world is scheduled for. It's a shaking that is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, by the prophet Joel, by the prophet Haggai, many of the minor prophets. It's then spoken of again in the book of Hebrews, this great shaking in the world. But it's described by Isaiah this way in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 17. It says, fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. Now, let me say something here. If you're a Christian, don't get scared. Just hang on for like five minutes. (laughs) But he says that it shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he that comes up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare for the windows from on high are open and the fountains of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. I think that'll make the waves in the sea roar, don't you? I mean, you shake this thing up, see what happens to the oceans and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again and it shall come to pass in that day that the lord shall punish the host of the high ones that's the powers of the heavens will be shaken according to jesus that are on high and the kings that are of the earth that are upon the earth And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days shall they be visited. Then, and that's important because it's progressive, then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. And so Jesus speaks of the shaking of the world and that will take place during the time of the tribulation. And then he concludes the passage in verse 27 or concerning the signs at least by saying, and then back in Luke 21, shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. And and so the signs that Luke gives concern number one the labor pains the increase in frequency and uh, intensity as the day approaches then the seeing of jerusalem being set up the scene set up for the last days then the world being in a place where there are perplexed problems without solutions And then he gets into the things that we know of as being during the tribulation, the great shaking uh, that will take place and all that accompanies it. And then he finishes it at the end of the tribulation with the return of Jesus Christ, that Jesus will come back at the end of that thing. You say, okay, what does that have to do with me? And where do we as the church fit into the context of all of this? Notice in verse 28, what Jesus says. He says, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads. Now that's two different things there. He says, look up and lift up your heads. One speaks of the direction of our eyes. The other speaks of the direction of our heart. One is where our our eyesight is because of what we're expecting. The other is where our countenance is because of what's coming. In other words, when you see these things begin to come to pass, it's then, as he concludes, your redemption draweth nigh. And so we are not looking for the coming of destruction that will accompany the day of the Lord, but we're looking for the redemption that he promised that he would pull out his ambassadors prior to his judgment of the world, because Paul said, Jesus, the Holy Spirit by Paul said to us that he has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as we wrap up this sermon now, moving into verse twenty-nine, what's the reason that Jesus gave it? What sense, and as we uh, draw it now to a close? It says, and he spoke to them now a parable. So after giving them all of this information to answer their question about the signs and what's coming, now he gives them some reason. And he says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees when they now shoot forth you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand so likewise you when you see these things come to pass know ye that the kingdom of god is nigh at hand or near at hand verily i say unto you that this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away Now, he says, behold the fig tree and all the trees. Now, Matthew and Mark don't say all the trees. They just say, behold the fig tree. But Luke looks past just the fig tree. And he says, look at this in the broad brush picture, the broad brush spectrum. Concerning the timing and the placing of these events. He says this, and listen carefully, church. This is of the utmost importance, especially in our days. Listen, as he says that it will be like the blossoming of the fig tree. When the leaves come out and the branches are tender, you know that pretty soon you're gonna have figs. That is to be the way that you approach and understand end times things. That is this, that you're to look at the whole picture, the whole tree, if you would, the trunk, the branches, the twigs, the leaves, the figs, all of it. And you're to make an assessment based upon the whole thing and say, look, the tree is blossoming, so figs must be coming. Now, let me ask you this. Anybody here, I know, Vinny, you had a fig tree for a while. You were actually cultivating the things. But if you have an orange tree or an apple tree or a peach or cherry tree or something in your yard, we all understand exactly how this works. The blossoms come. We know soon there's going to be fruit. None of us, not one, goes in and analyzes every branch and measures the sap flow and tries to pin down the day that the fruit will come and that the fruit will be ripe. None of us do that. We say, oh, the tree's ripe. We know there's gonna be fruit. It's gonna come within this period of time. We know that that's gonna happen because it happens every year. The blossoms and then the thing. Nobody tries to say, hey, on June 21st, cherry harvest. That's the day when I know it's perfect ripeness of it. Nobody does that. And we also are not to be so consumed with end times things that we're analyzing where the sap is in the branches, trying to figure out the very day and the hour that things are going to happen. What we're to do is this. Jesus says, here's how you stay sane. Look at the scenario, understand what's going on, and then realize that when you see the leaves, you're in the time frame of the figs. What's the time frame? He says it in verse 32. He says it will be in the generation time frame is in the span of a generation verily i say unto you this generation that is the generation that sees the leaves blossom that sees these signs coming into fruition that watches the players come into position that that generation will be the generation that sees these things but that's the time frame that we're dealing with this in this not hours days weeks or months and then he says understand verse 33 heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away. That's where we stand. That's where our feet are planted. That's where our anchor is concerning these things. Now, I don't think any person that knows Bible prophecy and is looking around at what's going on in the world today would deny that we are living in the last days. We understand and we know that, but we must out of obedience to him and also to maintain a good and credible witness in the world, keep a sober mind concerning these things and the things that we share and we must not lose focus on our mission in the midst of what we're waiting for amen jesus says then here's the warning verse 34 he says and take heed second time in this passage he issues a warning the first concerning deception this one he says take heed to yourselves lest at any time your hearts be overcharged that means overburdened, weighed down, with surfighting and drunkenness. Surfighting is excess that causes a hangover. It's the only time in the whole Bible that this Greek word is used that's translated through fighting. And what it literally means is the hangover that comes after you've ex- you know, been excessive in indulging in something that you shouldn't be indulging in. And he says, sir, and drunkenness. And drunkenness is being under the influence of something that you've allowed into your life. But notice what he says, lest your hearts be overcharged. Do you see that? He doesn't, he's not talking about going out on a Friday night. Beware that you don't have a bender. You're not supposed to do that either. Don't do that. <laughs> but what he's saying here is that you need to be careful that you don't allow so much world and the influences of the world into your heart and into your life. And then the effects of that worldliness bring you into a stupor or into somewhat of a spiritual hangover to the point where you're so heavy laden with the affairs and cares of this life that you're unaware of the times that you're living in. He says, the cares of this life and so that that day comes upon you unawares. And here's why it can come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth now how many is all all that includes us meaning that part of the scene and the stage that's being set is being done so swiftly and secretly by things that we can't see and understand that it would even catch the best of us off guard even though we're paying attention to the best of our ability. He says it will be like a snare that will be set. It's being enclosed around while they're not even paying attention. And then at the one moment, boom. Like Jesus said a few chapters ago, like it was in the days of Lot and Noah that in the very day that they were taken in or taken out, sudden destruction came upon them. He says, watch, verse 36, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Number one instruction is this, be watching. Be watching. What does it mean to watch? It means to be aware of what the Bible says is going to happen and at the same time be aware of what's going on in the world, geopolitically, in terms of the natural process of things, in terms of prophetic events that Jesus spoke of and that the Bible speaks of, we're to be aware of what's going on in context of it so that we can understand where we're at and what we're to do. That's what it means to watch. Now, here's what happens in a lot of places is that people get so crazy about this and they make crazy predictions about this and those predictions don't come to pass and the result is that the kickback is the church just says, Ah, away with it i don't want to hear about it but if you do that what you're doing is that you're disobeying one command in order to obey another you're not being watchful so that you don't get deceived but jesus says both don't be deceived but be watchful and both things are essential and secondly be prayerful pray always prayer in the life of a believer is the sign of a spiritual pulse. If you're praying, you're relating. You're having a relationship. You're living. You're walking with God if you're praying. If you're not, I don't know. But pray. He says, watch and pray. And here's what you're to pray. That we might be accounted worthy, listen, to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. Do you hear that? Escape how much of this? All see, the church age, it ends with the rapture. Jesus says, you don't have to go through this. Revelation chapter three, verse 20, Jesus said, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try it. And thus we're to keep our heads up, our hearts up, our eyes up, as we see the things that are taking place because our redemption draws nigh. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. And so the week progresses. The worship team uh, can come. As we close, there is absolutely a day coming when there will be a rapture and when there will be a tribulation and when there will be an interruption and there will be a shaking. And these things that the Bible talks about, these things will come to pass upon the earth. It's not a matter of if these things will happen. It's a matter of when will these things happen. And there is a generation that will be interrupted. There will be people that are standing on the altar about to say, I do. And in the middle of that sentence, I do, there's gonna be an interruption. There's gonna be people that are in college, graduating college, just ready to start their life. And they're gonna be interrupted The things are gonna happen. There's going to be someone in every scenario and walk of life. It is absolute that these things are going to be happened. A generation will be interrupted. Why not our generation? But the Bible says that we are to watch. The purpose of this teaching that was given by Jesus was twofold. Is that, so that number one, we would have bearings, meaning that we would know where we are. And that number two, we would have perspective, so that we would know where we are in light of God's plan. And then number two, we would be able to order our lives then according to what is fitting for a Christian who's not attached nor is a citizen of this world. That's the reason for this teaching. That's why Jesus gave it, because he wants us to know where we are so that we're not lost and clueless, but he wants our hearts to be not rooted in the things of this world, but rather in the things of heaven. That's his will for our lives. I can guarantee you this, is that there will be a day when he will come and take us up. But for every day that passes that he doesn't take us up, he promises that he will come down. In Acts chapter one, verse six, and I really, this is my closing statement. I'm sorry for being so long tonight. I promise I won't make it a habit. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response to them was this. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has put within his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here's the point, the closing point is that if Jesus tarries one day or two days or two months or two years, then the reason why he's tarrying is because there's still work to do. And if there's still work to do, then that means there is power from the Holy Spirit available to us on a daily basis in order that we might live this life and fulfill that work that he's given for each one of us. So as hungry as every one of us are to go home, and I think we're all hungry to go home, if he has work for us to do, then may we, in the days that we have remaining, even if it's the rest of our life, may we live out those days in the full power of his Holy Spirit that we might accomplish his will both in us and through us while we wait. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for this encouraging, mysterious, exciting and timely word and we ask you lord that you would take the things that we've heard now sort them out in our minds let your holy spirit sift and organize them that we wouldn't be deceived or carried away by our own interpretations or thoughts but lord may they be applied to our lives in the most useful and practical way they can be that we might serve your purposes in the world so encourage us as we encourage one another that we ask these things in jesus name amen